everyone, I'm your host Nimar and welcome to the This or That podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I hope everyone is doing well. Today we are going to discuss the history behind the Russian royal family, the Romanovs. So for this week, I had a hard time trying to categorise what segment to put this episode in. I was initially planning on doing a crime overtime episode, um, but I went back home a couple of weeks ago, about two weeks ago, to get my booster done. And me and my parents watched a documentary on Amazon Prime about Rasputin. This kind of re-triggered my interest in the Romanovs again, because I've always really um, found them interesting. The history behind the Romanovs is quite complicated, there's a lot to it. There's also a big mystery behind them as well. And also we've never really learned about them in school. We always, any kind of Russian history that we learned was um, about like Stalin and the communism. But all of that happens after the Romanovs. Actually, one of my favourite Disney films is Anastasia, which if you didn't know is about the mystery of one of the Romanov daughters called Anastasia. Very loosely, it depicts her losing her memory after the revolution, where all of her family are dead, um, and somehow she escapes. She becomes an orphan, and she gets entangled with these two men who want her to pretend to be Anastasia because of how eerily similar she looks to her. If they're able to successfully pretend that she's Anastasia and get away with it, they get money for it. However, little does Anastasia know, and the two men... She is actually the real Anastasia. Some elements of this film are accurate, so there was a lot of speculation around the mystery to Anastasia. However, there are also a lot of elements that are not accurate, um, which, if you know Disney, that happens quite often. Anyways, I decided to put this episode into the general rewind because I just thought that made the most sense. So yeah, welcome to a general rewind episode. A quick summary as to who the Romanovs actually were. The Romanov family was the last imperial dynasty to rule Russia. They first came to power in 1613, and over the next three centuries, 18 Romanovs took the Russian throne, the last of which was Nicholas II. Very briefly, I'm going to explain the events that take place, and then after we're going to go into more detail about them. In 1917, the Russian Revolution took place, which was seen as one of the most explosive political events of the 20th century. During the revolution, the Bolsheviks seized power, and this marked the end of the Romanov dynasty. Tsar Nicholas, his wife, Empress Alexandra, and their five kids, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei, were all executed by the Bolshevik troops. The Bolsheviks play a big part within the Romanov history, so who actually were they? They were a revolutionary party committed to the idea of Karl Marx and communism. They're also known as the Reds. Members within this party usually were under the age of 30 and were mainly working class, peasants, industrial workers and farmers. They believe that the working class should be liberated from the economic and political control of the upper class. So at this time, there was a massive divide between the working class and the upper class. The upper class were benefiting from all the wealth, had all the money, and had a lot of the power in terms of how Russia was functioning. Whereas the working class were the complete opposite. They were the ones that actually were doing all the work and yet were benefiting very little. 
Now, originally, the Bolsheviks were part of the Mensheviks Party, which was a democratic Labour Party formed in 1893. However, they split as the Bolsheviks, as they believe the revolution should happen more quickly, since the working class couldn't rule themselves. Thus, they decided that they would form a dictatorship that would hold power until Russia would modernise. In the early 1900s, Russia was one of the most impoverished countries in Europe, with enormous peasantry and a growing minority of poor industrial workers. Much of Western Europe viewed Russia as an underdeveloped and backward society. Well into the 19th century, the Russian Empire was still dependent on feudalism, where peasants were forced to serve nobility. In contrast, feudalism had disappeared in most of Western Europe by the end of the Middle Ages. People in the countryside struggled to find work and grow food due to Russia's northern climate. Harvest season was very difficult. There was very little produce. Cities were overcrowded and busy. Civilians were living in destitute living conditions. And there was very little work. Usually the work was just in factories, where, as we know, people were having to work really hard with very little pay. The leader of the Bolsheviks' party was Lenin. Lenin and the Bolsheviks did not like the royal family because they represented power, classism and wealth, everything that they wanted to eradicate. In 1905, the Bloody Sunday Massacre took place, where the working class held protests on the streets of St. Petersburg, which was then known as Petrograd against the monarchy. The Tsar was failing, he was seen as a poor monarch and Russia became more and more corrupt and oppressed. A lot of people didn't really like the way that the Tsar was ruling Russia and this was not helped by the fact that in February of 1904 Russia was at war with Japan. This war happened because the Russian Empire and Japanese Empire disagreed over who should get parts of Manchuria and Korea. In attempts to resolve the issues because of this war, a conference was held in November of 1904. However, the demands at this conference were unmet. Ultimately, Japan did win this war and these unkept promises made people hate the Tsar more because as a monarch, he was promising all of these improvements and this modernization, but he wasn't falling through with any of them. On the 22nd of January 1905, a group of workers marched to the Tsar's palace. However, they were met with open fire, which killed and wounded hundreds. Strikes and riots broke out throughout the country in outrage to the massacre. Nicholas made promises to work towards reform, but later goes back on these promises once again. Then, in 1914, World War I breaks out. Russia joined in August of 1914 in support of their French and British allies. Now you can guess who made up the army for Russia. Of course, it was the working class. They were untrained and ill-equipped. Russia's involvement was disastrous for the Russian Empire. Millions died and the Tsar took control of the military himself, despite not actually knowing what he was doing. Because he spent a lot of time at the Eastern Front, it meant his wife, Alexandra, was left in control of the cities. She became increasingly influenced by Rasputin, who we'll talk about more later. She called him, quote, a friend. However, to the public, he was seen as the, quote, mad monk. 
1916, 2 million Russian soldiers were killed or seriously injured and about 300,000 were taken prisoner. Millions of peasants were conscribed into the Tsar's armies, but supplies of rifles and ammunition remain inadequate. It's estimated that one third of Russia's able-bodied men were serving in the army. The peasants were therefore unable to work on the farms, producing the usual amount of food. By November of 1916, food prices were four times as high as before the war. As a result, strikes for higher wages became common in Russian cities. As you can see, Russia is not doing very well. The majority of civilians in Russia were not happy with the way that the Russian Empire was functioning and based upon. They did not like the royal family, they did not like the upper class. They'd been at war. People were struggling to survive and actually live within this country with no food, very, very little pay, inadequate living conditions. The majority of them were just struggling to survive and they were getting no help from the Tsar with his unkept promises. All of a the sudden, they've already been at war with Japan and now they've been thrown into another world war and things are all over the place. The Tsar, the, the royal family, the king of the country, is not even ruling. He's serving the army at the Eastern Front and his wife is having to take control where you'll find out later she's not really liked by the public either. So there's a lot of issues within Russia at this moment and generally people were just not happy. Because of all of this corruption and all of the issues within Russia, in 1917, the February Revolution takes place. It's called the February Revolution because Russia used the Julian calendar, which meant that on the day that this revolution takes place, for them, it was February the 23rd. However, in the Gregorian calendar, it actually began on March the 8th. So on March the 8th, 1917, the Russian Revolution takes place. As I said before, protests happen on the streets of Petrograd. Open fire was called on the protesters. However, a lot of the army were also fed up with the royal family. And so they actually just agreed with the protesters and a lot of them refused to open fire. On March the 12th, Tsar Nicholas abdicated the throne and had to flee, ending centuries of the Russian Romanov rule. The Duma, which was a new provisional government, established liberal programs of rights such as freedom of speech, equality and the rights of unions to organise strikes and opposed violent social reform. However, whilst there seemed to be improvement, there were still a lot of issues that were going on in the background. Russia's involvement in the war was still ongoing and despite almost everyone being against it. Unrest continued to grow as peasants looted farms and food riots erupted in the cities. The government didn't really fix anything at all. This then led to the Bolsheviks Revolution, also known as the October Revolution, despite happening on November the 6th and 7th of 1917. This revolution was led by Lenin and was launched against the Duma government. Now the issue with the Duma government was that it was led by the Russian bourgeoisie, those within capital class, those that Lenin and the Bolsheviks did not like. He didn't want the government ruled by rich people in power. Instead, he wanted government ruled by the people. The Bolsheviks marched to Petrograd and began occupying government buildings and then captured the palace. Bolshevik soldiers arrested ministers, bringing this government to an end. Lenin then takes power and communism begins. 
Okay, so now we're going to go back to the Romanovs and give a bit of history around them. So Nicholas II takes power in 1894 and makes Princess Alix of Hearst from Germany his wife in the same year after his coronation. She is later known as Alexandra. Alexandra was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. Nicholas and Alexandra had four daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Anastasia and Maria, as well as one son, Alexei. As the only boy, Alexei was the rightful heir to the throne. However, he suffered from haemophilia, which is a rare genetic disorder that affects the blood's ability to clot. Someone suffering with this disorder cannot clot as quickly as a healthy person. In a healthy person, clotting factors in the blood combine with platelets to clot the blood and make you stop bleeding quickly. Those who have haemophilia do not have as many clotting factors as they should in the blood and therefore bleed for longer. Because of this, haemophilia can be very dangerous and actually life-threatening. Interestingly, it's often called the royal disease. As it's a genetic disorder and royal families would marry into each other, it was very common in European royal bloodlines. So a lot of Victoria's relatives had it. As we know, Alexandra is a relative of Victoria. Now, a lot of the women were just carriers of it, and so it's presumed that it came from Alexandra's side. Alexei's disorder was kept a secret because it threatened the Romanov dynasty, and it made the family look even more vulnerable. This is where Grigory Rasputin gets introduced. He was a self-proclaimed holy man born in 1869 in Western Siberia, Russia, to a peasant family who led a very simple life. Surviving in Siberia was a constant struggle. It's been said that from childhood, Rasputin held supernatural abilities. He claimed that he had visions of the future and angels visited him in his dreams. He could heal horses when they were sick by just simply touching them. At 28 years old, he was married and had four kids. Rasputin was seen as quite an odd character. There was a lot of speculation surrounding whether he was within a cult and historians believe he must have actually ran into a cult Klitsky, which branched off from the Russian Orthodox Church. He spent a few months at a monastery and became a monk and one day he said that Virgin Mary came to him and told him to go to Petrograd and help the royal family. He spent many years wandering Europe and gets a reputation as being a mystical healer. Not only that, but that's also why a lot of people thought that he was quite strange. He was very unkempt looking, very dirty, didn't really wash that much. He looks quite scary. He has very dark eyes, long hair, a long beard. If you search up pictures of him, it is a bit scary the way that he looks. But nevertheless, a lot of people believed in his supernatural abilities. Whilst in Petrograd, he was able to convince royal ministers of his ability and Alexandra became aware of Rasputin at a party. One time, Alexei fell and cut himself. Rasputin found out and came to, quote, heal him, claiming that God had told him of Alexei and that without Rasputin, Alexei would not survive. He did indeed help Alexei and Alexandra saw this as enough proof to say that he truly was a holy man. Modern scientists believe that, of course, 
this was not actually magic, but instead Rasputin stopped doctors from giving Alexei aspirin, which would make his blood thinner and make his condition worse. Also, he probably found out about Alexei hurting himself through one of these royal ministers or a few people that he'd met at the party who had a bit of inside knowledge around the royal family. Regardless, within a few months, Rasputin became a regular in the Romanov family and he started giving opium, morphine and cocaine to Tsar Nicholas, claiming it would help him relieve stress that he had been suffering with because of all the issues that were happening with the, within the Russian Empire. Throughout this time that Rasputin was with the Romanovs, the family started to become more and more dependent on him. However, a lot of people didn't like him, putting the Romanovs at a further disadvantage. Politicians use the fact that the Romanovs like Rasputin as a way of questioning their credibility. Rumours began that his relationship with Alexandra was more than platonic, but historians say that it is likely that he actually spread these rumours himself and he was never more than a healer in her eyes. During World War One, he claimed that the Russian armies wouldn't be successful unless Tsar Nicholas personally went and took command, which which, as we know, Nicholas did. The Tsar was not really suited as a leader. He put all his faith in the divine right to rule. It was said that he was very indecisive and uncharismatic. Some say that he had so few ideas of his own that almost all orders made was on the advice of someone else. Alexander was left with a lot of power within the cities. However, she was also disliked by Russians as she was of Anglo-German descent. People just didn't trust her especially at this time since the war was against Germany, many suspected that she was actually a spy for them. However, she didn't really help the fact that people disliked her because she made it very clear that she didn't like Russian culture. And so people hated her and she hated Russia. People weren't happy with that. And so that kind of just fed on their hatred for her, really. Whilst the Tsar is away, she starts firing elected officials who distrust Rasputin. With this, Rasputin just becomes more and more powerful and nobody trusts him. Due to this, a group form, including some of the Tsar's own cousins, and they band together and plot to kill Rasputin. In December of 1916, a group led by Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Prince Felix, and right-wing politician Valdemir Purishkevich invite Rasputin to the Mocha Palace. They give him food and drinks that are laced with cyanide. However, somehow Rasputin is not affected by the poison. Because their plan failed, they instead decide to shoot him with a revolver. It is said that Dmitri takes the gun and shoots him in the chest. They think he's dead, but suddenly he gets up and attacks them, managing to escape. He is then shot again and he falls in the palace courtyard. One goes straight through his forehead. Now, the fact that the cyanide didn't kill him, nor did the shot in the chest, it's often why he's referred to as a man who wouldn't die. After Rasputin has actually died, the three dump him in the river, and a few days later, his body is found. Dmitri and Felix later claim that they acted to protect the Romanov dynasty, and Rasputin was a threat that they had to deal with. However, the revolution was already underway, and the February 
revolution would take place in a couple of months. So Rasputin's death really didn't do anything. Moving back to the Romanovs and after the initial revolution where the Duma government are introduced, Tsar Nicholas was stripped of his provisional government title and instead of being Tsar Nicholas, he was simply just Nicholas. Him and his family are kept at a palace just outside of St. Petersburg under house arrest. During this time, it was said that Nicholas actually thrived in this new life. He was never cut out to be a ruler, but here he was able to spend time with his family and just relax. Whilst he wasn't a good leader, he was a very good family man. Despite being under house arrest, they still lived in luxury within a palace and having house comforts like furniture that they would have had before, as well as plenty of servants. However, the Bolsheviks gained full power in October and the provisional government who were still high class rich people who liked the royals and gave them all of this luxury, the Bolsheviks hated them. And so by March 1918, the family was stripped to only soldiers' rations, having no home comforts. However, they still did have a few servants. In April 1918, they are sent to Ipatiev House in Yekaterinburg, which is a strong communist and anti-imperial area. Their windows are covered with newspapers and they are not allowed any visitors. During this time, there were a lot of guards who started to sympathise with the family. These guards had spent a lot of their time hating the Tsar and the idea of the royals. However, once they saw him interact with his family in the way that he did, they actually started to like him and they felt really bad for him. In July 1918, Nicholas was 50, Alexandra was 46, Olga 22, Tatiana 21, Maria 19, Anastasia 17 and Alexei 13. Alexei was getting more and more sick as he's had no access to doctors for months. There were a lot of questions within the Bolsheviks as to what should be done with the Romanovs. They couldn't be released, of course, and some wanted a public trial for Nicholas. They thought that he should pay for the damage he caused during his reign. However, Lenin wanted to keep them alive so he could use them as a pawn in the war against Germany due to Alexandra and her German descent. Some people just wanted them to be executed right then and there. However, during this time, civil war broke out in the late 1970s after the Bolsheviks revolution. This war was between the Reds, who were the Bolsheviks, and the Whites, who were anti-communists. The Whites threatened to capture part of Russia. The Reds were fearful that if this was the case, and since the Whites were made up of capitalists, monarchs, and supporters of democratic socialism, once the Whites had won, the Romanovs would fall into their hands and again regain power. At the end of June, the Oral Regional Soviet decided that the Tsar should be executed. However, the planning of the execution of the entire family was in talks secretly. This was hidden because of the political issues that may have arisen. They could justify the killing of the Tsar because of what he had done and the issues he had caused under his reign, but the kids and arguably Alexandra, they didn't do anything. Therefore, it was kept a secret. The night of the 17th of July, after 78 days at Ipatiev, 
the family and servants were awoken at 1.30 a.m. They were told by Yurovsky that the civil war was threatening the city and that they needed to go down to the basement for their own safety. Whilst in the basement, Alexandra asked for a chair, where she was actually given two. She sat in one and Alexei sat in the other. Yurovsky then told the family he needed to take a picture of them because people thought that they had escaped. Nicholas stood behind Alexei's chair and the daughters arranged themselves behind Alexandra and then the servants stood behind Nicholas. After this, instead of a photographer, 11 men enter with revolvers. Yurovsky reads a statement aloud which follows, In view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attacks on Soviet Russia, the Oral Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Nicholas responds what? Where Yurovsky then repeats the statement and shoots Nicholas at point blank range, killing him immediately. As soon as this happens, everyone else begins to shoot the wall of prisoners. Alexandra dies straight away in her chair. Olga dies with a single bullet through her head. Three of the servants die pretty quickly too. Interestingly, the story goes that Demidova, who's one of the servants, Alexei, Maria, Anastasia and Tatiana refuse to die, bullets ricocheting off of their skin. However, they do eventually die. It was later discovered that they had sewn diamonds into their clothes to hide them and this acted as armor. Yurovsky personally kills Alexei with two shots through his ear. At the end of it, the executioners check everyone's pulses to make sure they were dead. They then wrap them in sheets and carry them to a truck waiting outside the building. This whole thing took only 20 minutes. They then took the bodies to a location known as Four Brothers, which was in a forest that Yurovsky had found two days prior. This area had empty pits from when people would dig for coal, and so the bodies were stripped, and it was then found that 18 pounds of diamonds were sewn into the clothes. The clothes were then burnt. The bodies are thrown into the pits, as well as hand grenades in attempts to collapse the shaft. A week after the execution, the Whites take control, and they rush to Ipetyav House to find the family. However, of course, they're not there. A search is done and they note that the basement looks slightly odd. There's a lot of blood on the floorboards and a lot of bullet marks on the floor and wall. Six months later, in January 1919, the Whites hired Nicholas Sokolov, a professional investigator, to find the family. When the snow melts, he sees tracks leading them straight into the Four Brothers. The pits were full of water and they see some clear marks of grenades. Once the water is taken out, they find belongings of the family, such as articles, belts, jewellery, medals, and a few charted bones, as well as a severed finger. However, no bodies are actually found. One of the executors are interrogated, who confirmed that 11 people were murdered. From this, Sokolov concluded that the day after the execution, Yurovsky returned and destroyed the bodies by chopping and burning them to ash. For many years, that was just assumed to have been what happened. No one questioned it. However, many years later, a relative of Yurovsky actually gave um, Yurovsky's like diary where he had recorded what actually happened. So the following events are what are recorded within Yurovsky's diary. He did return to find that everyone was talking about where the family were buried since some of the guards who were present had spread 
news of their death. Yurovsky returns and brings the body up from the mines one by one. At 8pm they go to some new mines about 20 miles away. By 4.40am however the cars get stuck in deep mud on the way there. So they decided just to bury the bodies where they were. Yurovsky for some reason wanted to burn the bodies of Alexei and Alexandra but then realises that he may have mistaken Alexandra's body for Anna's which was one of the maids. He burns the two bodies regardless of who they are. He then buried them under the bonfire site and then dug a grave for the rest which was six feet deep and eight feet wide. Once placed in the grave, it is doused in sulfuric acid and is covered in boards and driven over so it was hidden. This place that the family were buried at was a place called Pig's Meadow in Koptiochi. But in 1979, Alexandra Avdenin and filmmaker Gil Ryabov decided to dedicate their time into finding out where the bodies actually were. It was them that located the oldest son of Yurovsky, who was Alexandra Yurovsky, who hands over the copies of his dad's report of the execution of the family. This diary details the disposal of the bodies and it confirmed that they weren't in Four Brothers but instead the series of events that I had just explained was what actually happened. Once reading this, in late May of 1979, them and a team start to dig at Pig's Meadow. They find the bodies, they take three skulls and then they fill the pits back up. They believe that one one belonged to the Tsar, one was Alexei's and one was one of the daughters. Now they actually had to be discreet about all of this because politics in Russia was still an issue and the testing behind these skulls proved very difficult as no one wanted to test on the Romanovs. It was still a very touchy, fragile subject at this time. So the two of them just kept the skulls and then in 1980 they returned the skulls back as they were scared and and had not told anyone. Late 1980s was when the Soviet Union was on its downfall and the communist rule closes. In July 11th 1991, the military head out after the two now reveal their information. A professional exhumation was then carried out. They then find all the skeletons disordered, lying on top of each other at different angles. The bodies were in terrible condition. They were broken and destroyed because of the acid and the high pressure. However, they actually only realised that there were nine bodies in this pit, despite concretely knowing for a fact that 11 people had been executed. Sergei Abramov identified and confirmed that these were the bodies of the Romanovs. Because DNA testing was inaccessible, they needed the full skeletons to identify who was who. They had to use skeleton shapes compared to photographs to confirm. Using math to do so. Interestingly, this technique was new and the Russians invented it for this investigation. However, without DNA testing, they weren't completely sure and the scientists working on this weren't given a lot of money and so they had very little funding to actually do much. In the summer of 1992, it was said that they had found everyone but Alexei and Maria. So if we go back to what I said at the start where I referred to the Disney movie, Anastasia was not the missing princess. She was not considered to have been missing at this point. Instead, it was Maria. It was only until an American doctor, William Maple, concluded that 
what was thought to be Anastasia's body was actually Maria. Maria was 19 years old, two years older than Anastasia, and he said that the skeleton just simply fitted better and he didn't think any other skeleton was young enough to be Anastasia. He noted that in the pictures she was a lot shorter than her sisters and this simply just didn't match with any of the skeletons. However, Abramov was still convinced that Maria was the one who was missing. So this is where the search for the lost princess kind of begins. In July 1992, the British Home Office agrees to DNA test the remains. This was actually quite seen as quite embarrassing for the Russians as they were behind on science and genetics. But anyway, if enough uncontaminated DNA was found from the bodies, they could then compare this DNA to a living relative of the Romanov. So in 1992, Prince Philip donated blood and tested this against Alexandra. Philip was the great nephew of Alexandra and it was a match. Alexandra and three kids were confirmed. However, this obviously didn't confirm Nicholas, but it was concluded that he was probably there. Eventually, in 1993, Nicholas is actually confirmed. They are then buried in St. Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg. This is when rumours started that Anastasia was living in hiding, scared to come out and say who she was. There had been a lot of people who claimed to be Anastasia, but eventually in August 2007, a Russian archaeologist announced that he found two partial skeletons at a bonfire site in Pig's Meadow. 44 bone fragments and teeth were removed, and it was said that the bones belonged to two young people, a male aged 12 to 15, and a female aged 15 to 29, buried there for more than 60 years. DNA confirmed that this was one female and one male of Nicholas's kids. Still unknown, however, whether it was Anastasia or Maria. And unfortunately, this can never really be confirmed. Interestingly, the Orthodox Church actually refused to believe these are the kids of the Romanovs, so they aren't buried with the remaining of the family. They demand further testing on the remains and said, quote, People have questions. We want further investigation so that any tests are done in the presence of church officials, which was said by Chaplin, who was the church spokesman. And so their remains are just kept in a repository and in storage. So that pretty much concludes the long and complicated history of the Romanov family. I did have to jump around the timeline a bit, but I hope it all makes sense in the end. also hope you all see why I have a really big interest in the Romanov family. There were a lot of complications that came when they were alive, and I do feel sorry for them. Especially the Tsar. He seemed like a good guy, but he just couldn't rule, and Russia were in a really vulnerable stage during his reign, and he just couldn't hack all of these situations and just, and just didn't know how to resolve them effectively. Feels like every two months or few months another issue comes up and he just he just doesn't know how to handle it. But anyway, make sure to follow this show and send through your opinions on the Romanovs or any other individuals. I think Rasputin is one of my favourite people within this history in this episode 
he's just a really interesting character and I think I could do a whole episode just around him and his life so I also think the influence that he had on the Romanos was just like it's so crazy how he held so much power so yeah be sure to let me know what you guys think make sure you also give some suggestions on what you want to hear in upcoming episodes via instagram at this or that podcast one or email this or that podcast 979 at gmail.com all of that will be in the episode description anyway so you can go check there if you want to confirm i really hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode and i hope to see you in the next one so until then bye